Genesis chapter 2 is where we'll be. Why don't we look to the Lord in prayer? Dearly Fathers, we just prayed that you would revive us, that you would give us a better and a more clear understanding of who you are, that our hearts and our minds would be even more focused on you and your word. So, dearly Father, help us now. As we open up your word, we will be tempted to read, sadly, many things that are not there and to miss the things that are there because of our own hearts that are so prone to wander, so prone to when we are confronted with things that your word confronts us with. We are so tempted to say, well, that's not what it really meant, or that's not the way it should be, or we acknowledge it and then just go live however we want. So, dearly Father, help us to be people of your word. Help us to be people that are willing to submit to what the word says. Look, come with me. In your name we pray. Amen. As I was preparing for this sermon about marriage, and you see as we've been taking our time down through this, the Bible has a lot to say about the foundation of marriage. And as I was thinking about this, I just spent a little time looking back over my lifetime, looking the way that marriage has been dealt with in our culture. Now, I was born in 1980, so I did get the privilege of living through the era of the best clothing and the best music. Uh, and in those 80s there, the, the assault that was on marriage carried over to the assault on marriage in the 90s to the point where we get to the point right now that pretty much anything is called marriage. Anyone can marry anybody, and we're left with the point of if marriage is nothing, then it is nothing at all. Like, if you can do whatever you want, what does marriage even mean? And as I'm sitting here working through this text, the the song that kept bouncing around in my mind was an old song by CCR that says, I see a bad moon arising, I see trouble on the way, I see earthquakes and lightning, I see bad times today, don't go around tonight, it's bound to take your life, there's a bad moon on the rise. And I just sit there and I just go, things do not look like they're going well right now, right? I mean, even that song, this is not like, woohoo, this is exciting. If you look at the state of marriage in our culture, you would say it is horrible. All right, and so then... But we say to ourselves, so what's a guy supposed to do, right? What is the one thing, and I don't know how many times people have said to me, so Tim, when I run into someone who thinks this, give me the line that I'm supposed to do that's going to convince them that they are wrong, repent of all of their ways, and change to what the right thing is. What is the one thing we can say? What is the key to it all, right? And the question in front of us, will we ever recover in this society, let alone this society, any society around the world, any type of biblical understanding of marriage. Will we ever get that? Well, let's start at the very beginning here. The church, by nature, is called by God to be a light to the world around us. That light is the gospel that goes forth and changes not only the way people act, but down to their very core, their heart. It takes a heart of stone out, puts a heart of flesh. It literally renews their mind to a new way of thinking and a new way of living. And it is the gospel that changes things. Which that would mean then, if the gospel literally changes things, and if you are here in this room and claim to be a follower of God, that means the gospel has changed you. So the question is, how do we ever reclaim a biblical understanding of marriage in our world? I would first ask, let's start with you first. Will you submit to God's word on the issue concerning marriage? Will you submit to the role, not only in marriage, but the role you have as a man and a woman even in the church? 
Because sadly, there are many all around that say, when are we going to get back to a biblical view of marriage? But yet we, as followers of God, do not have a biblical understanding of marriage, and our marriages do not reflect at all anything that the world would want to call this to be. I'll never forget, I ran into a kid one day, he was a little bit of an antagonist, and he just, you know, when you're in your teenage years, you don't think you know everything, you know you know everything. And one of the statements that this teenager made to me one time, which I thought had a little bit of nice truth in it, he said, if I listened to the way adults talked about marriage and the way adults lived as they were married, why, in any way, shape, or form, would I want to get married? When we have husbands complaining about the nag that God has given them with and the woman complaining about the husband that God has given them, and we sit here and we say, we wonder why the world around us doesn't understand biblical marriage, I would say, have you listened to yourself lately? And then that spills over into the church. And then all of a sudden the roles in the church are confused. And we have men not doing the things God has called men to do. We have women not doing the things that God has called women to do. And we sit here in utter confusion of the world around us, and the answer to it all is this. For those of us who are married, are you living in such a way that the world will see your marriage and be taught about Christ and the church? Paul is very clear in Ephesians 5 that marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. And your marriage, quoting Alistair Begg, he said this, so I don't know how he said it exactly. I was listening to him, and so I put this in my notes. Are you a living illustration of God's plan for marriage? Is the question he asked. Are you a living illustration of God's plan for marriage is in front of us? And I'm not talking about your spouse. I want to be clear on this because it's really easy to say, well, my spouse for sure isn't. I'm probably about 50%. I'm talking about you. Are you a living picture, a living illustration of how God would plan for marriage? Because I don't care. You could have the most wonderful spouse in the world and you could have the most, whatever you want to put in there, spouse in the world that God has given you. But if you are married today, God has said to you, there are certain roles that he has called you to be in your marriage. Now, that being said, we need to review a little bit from last week. I want to go through a couple of these things. Remember last week, we kicked ourselves back a little bit to Genesis 1, 26 and 27, where the Bible reminds us that God created man, and he created man in a male-female relationship, right? And how male and female relationship, in a way, the way that men and women interact with one another... And then the text is viewing the idea of marriage. There's an image bearing of God in that relationship. Because remember, the Trinity is in relationship. And as a triune God who is in relationship has created man to be in relationship. And that relationship is male and female. Now, before we have all of those who are not married, check out. All right, I want to make sure we're clear on this. What we're going to walk through here, when I talk to you about how... Married people display the image of God in this way. I want to remind you that marriage is not the only way to express your masculinity and femininity. We have the church and we have society as well. But most of us go, well, if I'm not married, well, then this doesn't apply to me. The Bible has a whole lot to say about the roles of men and women, not just in marriage, but also in the church and society as well. So let's dive into our review here. So remember we talked last that when God does something... He does it, and the way he does it matters. When he does one thing first and he does something second, there's a reason why did this come first and that came second type of thing. And so, last week we established that man was created first, and the reason we were able to establish that, because that's what the text tells us, that God made Adam. And he made Adam, and he gave Adam a command and responsibilities to be in the garden. 
The command was, here's what you're going to do, here's what you're not going to do. The moral pattern for the garden was given. What's acceptable, what's not acceptable. Man was given the call to protect the garden. And so with those things in our minds, we come to our passage of Scripture. Genesis chapter 2, verses 21 through 24. Let's look at the text here. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of, the ri- of his ribs and closed up in his place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last, is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. What we're going to see here again is that the order of creation matters. Who was created first? Man. Who was created last? Woman. All right, so we have an order here, all right? We don't have a third, so we don't really say second, all right? It was first and last here. All right, now, I want to be clear on this. What we're about ready to walk down through, I am not discussing, and because all of us, because we live in a world where feminism has corrupted all of our thinking, and let's, in mine as well as yours, all right? Let's just to say it from the very beginning. Because we're all immediately to say that men were created first, women were created last. Our knee-jerk reaction is to say subpar. That is the knee-jerk reaction that feminism has pounded into us. If you say there's a role change at all, it's somehow subpar. But this is not what Scripture teaches. I want to be clear on this. I'm not talking about value or importance. I'm talking about design and role. I want to be clear on this. So here we go. Let's turn real quick to 1 Corinthians 11. Because in 1 Corinthians 11 here, I'll get you there and then I want to build my case here, what Paul is saying. 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians is in the New Testament. It is right before 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 11. If you need any more help like that, I'm willing to help anytime. And in 1 Corinthians 11, all right, that the context of here, we're dealing with head coverings, and I'm not going to get into that conversation right now because that's another time for another place. All right? What Paul is talking about here, and I want to make sure we're clear on this, this is not Paul... Some guy that's got some type of just chauvinistic pig idea about masculinity and femininity of some ancient culture, and he's writing his ancient thoughts in this. We at CBC, whether you believe this or not, we at CBC believe that this was written by God, that God inspired Paul to write this, not just for his time, but all the way to our time as well. And these are the words that were written by Paul, inspired by God for our good and his glory. All right, so when we come to this, this is not just some guy Paul writing. These literally are the words of God for us to learn from. So here we go in verse 7 of 11. Chapter 11, verse 7. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. All right, real quick here. Paul is giving a commentary on the whole idea of head covering, and he goes back to the creative order to give us an understanding of the topic he's talking about. And in the creative order here, there's a couple things I want to bring out. That woman was made of man. We've already established that in our text. She was brought out of a rib. That woman was made of man. Woman was also made for man. Another point to bring out, she was also to listen to her husband. How do we know that she was to listen to her husband? Because who was given the marching orders? Adam was given the marching orders to to 
communicate to who? Eve, what God had commanded. All right, I'm just, we're just walking through this. That is why when we get to Genesis chapter 3, when everything goes down the drain, he does not go to Eve and say, listen here, Eve, what happened? Who does he go to first? Adam, because Adam was to communicate to Eve what's going on here, the moral pattern, and Eve was to listen to her husband of what's going on. But the responsibility of all of this goes to Adam. And so now also from this, I'm back in Genesis 2, by the way. We're done in 1 Corinthians. But in Genesis 2 here, notice that the woman was the helper for the husband. The woman was made as the helper for the husband. And last but not least, like we learned in 1 Corinthians, that the woman is the glory of her husband. Let's think about that for a second. The woman is the glory of her husband. That word glory, in a way, denotes the idea of a crown, that the man is the head, he is the one in authority, but she is the crown. Now, the crown of beauty, this concept of the woman being the crown of her husband, is not that the man goes around, like, say, in in a way going, look at how great this is. Literally, she is the one that is the one to be valued and the one to be treasured. This is what I would argue that Peter brings up, and he talks about woman being the weaker vessel, not weaker in strength, but the one to be honored and the the glory in, and the one to be crowned in. And that is why even today, when a king is wearing a crown, nobody comes in and goes, wow, look at the head. No, they go, wow, look at the crown, because the attention is towards the crown. All right, and God, in doing this, is literally saying to Adam, Adam, you were made from the dust of the ground. But remember, what does Adam need? He needs a helper, he needs a completer. And where does the completer come from? I love what Matthew Matthew Henry says about this. But the woman was dust, double refined. It was the dust that made Adam, but she was not made out of the dust. What was she made out of? Refined dust that was a rib, dust double refined, even further removed from the earth. Which I just, interesting to think through that. So I want to pause here for a second, because here's what happens in our society. We are so pounded by the and I'll say this in all gracious words, by the mankind's rebellion against God in everything. We are pounded by that all over the place. So even when it comes to creation of the world, the evolutionary thought process just pounds upon us. And I want to say there is no ground for that to stand on. And I want to give you an example, because we need to ask the question, why? Why does God make mankind male and female? Why not just make one thing that can just have asexual reproduction and create? The answer, I believe, is because God in all of his wisdom and all of his knowledge knew that man was going to rebel against everything God had made, even down to the very gender issue. But here's something that is amazing. The amazing design of God in all of his wisdom knew that mankind would rebel, and so when he knew that mankind would rebel, he would take this. He would say that the foolishness how man tries to describe, not only how did mankind come, but how in the world do you get female? You may be able to, if you try, cross your eyes, you know, twist your fingers, maybe add a, a gazillion hours plus chance plus time or whatever, you may get some type of flopping creature, but you've got nothing, right? There's nothing there. How do you get male and female created in perfect harmony and perfect complementary to one another to bring about life? You do not get that other than an all-wise creating God. Evolution cannot explain it all. And even mankind be created male and female destroys at the very root of it all 
that stuff happened with time plus chance and all the stupidity that sadly we have all around us. We have in front of us the great creator God. Now, before we go into point number two, that woman was made for man, I think we need to spend a little bit of time here and pause. And I want to give you an example of this happening all around us. As we start to start down a process of roles and the way God has designed things, I want you to, let's just take an illustration that happens all the time, especially in central Wisconsin, that we see this all throughout the fall. There's a lot of football being played. And in a football team is a phenomenal illustration of roles. Because in a, a good football team, each player understands their role for that play. They understand their assignment. They understand the play. They understand the snap count when things are going to happen. They understand what is the counters that are going to happen. They understand their role. Now, if a football team is not good, they start rebelling against their God-given roles in this example here. Where the quarterback goes, I don't need the offensive line in front of me. I can do it on my own. Well, that's not going to work out too well. You could do the same thing with wide receivers. And even the crazy part about it, as you start looking at a football team, there are certain body types you need for certain roles. All right, You need the guys who can move like half of humanity on your offensive line. You don't send him out as a wide receiver. You've all, we've all seen what happens when an offensive lineman or defensive lineman pick up a ball and try to run. All right, The TV doesn't even have to move the camera. It's because he's not going anywhere anytime fast because that's not his role. His role is not to be speedy. But if he understands his role, the team moves up and down the field with incredible beauty and almost, if you want to call it, artistic ability because they understand their roles in each way and play. And I would argue the same is exactly the true for a male and female role and design and understanding. If you get those things wrong, you will not understand relationships in general. Point number two. Notice here, woman was made from man. Woman was made from man. Notice what God does here to make a woman. These things are incredibly important for us to slow down and walk through it. Adam is put by God into a deep sleep. Note, look what the text says. So God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. Who put the man to sleep? God. All right? Adam needs help. What does God say? You're going to sleep. And in this sleep here, God is going to form Adam's helper. This is exactly what Isaiah 40 verse 13 says. Who is his counselor? Or who gives him any understanding? It is God. God did not say to Adam, let's group think here. Tell me what you think you need. I'll tell you what I think you need, and we'll just put it together. No, he says to man, you're going to sleep, and I will provide for you exactly what you need. Because remember, at the point of this, at the, right in front of, before Adam falls asleep, the proclamation has been made, it is not good what's going on here. Something needs to happen. And what does Adam do? Adam doesn't go, God, I got this. God says, I got this because I'm God and I know what you need. You're going to sleep. God puts him to sleep and now God is at work. In the middle of this issue, in the middle of the issue of it is not good, Adam is asleep. It's interesting, I'm not going to dive too much into this sleep, but it's interesting here, commentators wrote, Adam here has to trust God to provide for him. Adam can't do it himself. While Adam sleeps, God works. 
Adam in his sleep is going to God, you've got this. Now, again, Adam was put to sleep, so I was wondering how much is, you know, whatever. But what we have here is we have a rest of Adam while God is at work. It's interesting here, though, again, remember at the very beginning, I, there's a reason why I brought up Romans 5, that 12 through whatever, where Paul is talking about the, the interesting combinations and comparisons between the first and second Adam, right? Adam, the first Adam being Adam, and the second Adam being Christ, all right? and the comparison between the two. It's interesting here, as we read through this, the Son of God one day sleeps as well. And there's two things I think are really interesting. We'll get to one here in a second, but this one I want to walk through. We have an issue, right? Man should not be alone. Adam sleeps. When Adam wakes up, Adam can't do anything to help his condition anymore. Just Adam falling asleep while there's an issue going on, Adam waking up, nothing he did to solve anything. We have Christ in the boat while the storm is going on. What does he do? He sleeps, resting, trusting his heavenly Father. And when he wakes up, what does he do? He calms the storm. Far better than the first Adam could have done with any of the issues going on there. The first Adam, and you want to know, failed in doing anything to bring the helpmate. What does the second Adam do? Not only can he rest in God, but he can get up and command nature to do whatever nature wants to do. Showing there's not even a comparison between the first and second Adam there. The second Adam is far greater than the first Adam ever was. And I would argue that the first Adam is always pointing us towards, from the very beginning, we need a better Adam. We'll find out here how well Adam does in his moment of testing. But our, our, as you read through this, you should start to see the failure of Adam already. The creative being cannot even make a helper because Adam is not the answer to it all. As we continue on in this, Notice the answer to it. God takes a rib from Adam, Adam's side, and he closes the flesh over. God opens Adam's side, takes out a rib, and creates for Adam what Adam could not have done. One more example, I believe, is a foreshadow of what to take place. The opening of the side, out comes the helper. The opening of Christ, when Christ takes a sleep of death on the cross, what happens to his side? When his side is pierced, what comes out of his side? Blood and water, blood to redeem his people and water to wash them by the purification of his word. This is what Ephesians 5, 25 through 26 talks about in marriage, through the washing of the word, through the washing of God's word. And what we see here is the Adam, the only thing that came out of his side was a helpmate. What came out of Christ's side? Not only just a help, but the answer to our rebellious state. And so what we see here in these beautiful things are all, all pointing to Christ. May we not forget that from beginning to the end, literally we sang about it, that it is His story, that all of these things that are happening, when the writers of Scripture write, Christ's side was pierced. They could have just put His body was pierced, but when they write His side, we are to go, wait a minute, if He is the second Adam... What does this tell us about the first Adam and their comparison? This is what Paul does. He takes a whole chapter to write about this. May we also wake up as well and see the beautiful pictures that are going on there. Now this all being said, from his side, I want to look at what happened in verse 22. And the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made woman and brought her to the man. God brings the woman to the man. God is the one who brings the woman to the man. God, as her father, brings the woman to Adam. God is the one who presents the woman to Adam. God, as the creator of this woman, is saying, here, Adam, is your helper. Here is your helper. 
He does not create woman. God does not create woman and just say, there you go, and walk away. He literally is the one that brings this helper to Adam to present her to Adam. The woman is God's child. That he is the initiator that brings the woman to Adam. God is the one that gives the consent to this marriage. God is the one that says, Adam, I've created for you over here, your exact helpmate, and he ushers Eve, bringing Eve to Adam, and he says, Adam, this is your helpmate. I am the one that is saying, this is the answer to your issue. This is the answer to your loneliness. This is the helper you need. And Adam, in verse 23, cries out in excitement, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Literally, the word woman, and I'll help you if you don't know how it's defined. Literally, woman means she was taken out of man. When someone said, what is a woman? You literally say, someone who is created in the image of God, taken out of man. Literally, what her name means. And in here, we see her value and her role. And we'll deal more about that, but I want to pause here for a second. This last weekend, I had the privilege of being part of a marriage ceremony that I never had the privilege of being part before. All the time, I would literally just stand down here and say all the things everybody's expecting you to say and, and everything else. But now, this, this last week, I had the opportunity of playing the role of the father. And so coming up to this passage where the father is bringing the daughter down, all of a sudden, it was like the Lord was going, there's a reason why I put you through all this stuff, for you to learn these things. Because here's what we see. But I want to be careful real quick. There are some things that we do as a culture that are tradition, and all we do and understand them it is as tradition. If we do not understand where they come from, they just become like that wonderful fiddle-in-the-roof guy, I think it's whatever, Tavia, who just yells tradition and tradition, and why are we going to do this? Just tradition. And I don't know how many stinking times I've heard him say tradition in my mind. As you hear these over and over again, if we don't understand the depth of what these things become, and we do not pass them down to generation after generation after generation, you're going to be the group that goes, so whenever we read the Bible, everybody stands. Well, why do we read the Bible when everybody stands? Because that's what we always do at CBC. And why do we do it that way at CBC? Because every time we read the Bible, we stand. And no one goes, we do it to honor the Word of God. We're standing in honor of it. But if no one says that, everybody just goes, all right, we're going to read the Bible, and we all just stand up. And everybody, I don't know why we're doing this. We just do it. And I could give you religion after religion after religion that has so many traditions that we have no idea even where they came from, and we have lost it. But here's one that I believe that we need to make sure we see. And I think every single time we come to a wedding, I would love for you, yeah, it's nice and all the fancy stuff, all the music, but every wedding is screaming to those even in the room that are married, take this seriously. Take your marriage seriously. The two that are getting married have no clue what they're about ready to face, all right? But you do. So wake up and take this seriously. So now, I want to walk through this tradition. What we have in the wedding tradition that I think is incredibly biblical for us, and if you ever have a child to get married, I would encourage you to make sure these are in here. The father, if he's, available, if he's able to, will walk the bride down the aisle. In him walking the bride down the aisle, he, by the very definition, is giving consent to the marriage. He is the one that is ushering his daughter to, if you want to call it in the picture here, to Adam, like Christ ushered his bride that he had made, Eve, to Adam. Not only that, though, 
That is why I would argue for all of you men in the room that are desiring to be married one day, that is why I would argue biblically you must go and ask consent of the father before you say to the daughter, will you marry me? I would argue from that is where we get that idea. Because the father is the one who gives consent to the marriage. And he's literally showing that. Not only that, but as the father is ushering his his daughter down the aisle, the congregation stands. Why do they stand? They stand in honor of the woman that is being given. Just like Adam, when he sees his bride being brought to by Christ, calls out with joy, great joy. Joy, rejoicing. That is why we play music when the bride comes down, because this is a time of celebration. This is a time of rejoicing, because the helper is coming for that man. Because it is not good that man should be alone. And if you watch this, as they're coming down, the minister standing there then asks the question, who presents this woman to be married? And the father says, he does, because he is the one that's giving consent to the whole marriage here. This is what Christ did here when he brings the woman to Adam. And he says, this is is the perfect one for you. This is the one you need. And not only that, in the wedding ceremony then, after a couple things are said, the father literally will take the hand of the young man and place it in the hand of his daughter. And the, literally that exchange that takes place then. And I try to, when I walk through the premarital counseling with these people, I say to that, that guy there, I'll just call him a knucklehead who has no idea what he's getting into, you need to feel the weight of you're just taking dad's spot. Because just like dad had to usher this child down all the way there, just like the daughter was overseen and loved by her dad all the way down there, now you, young man, it's up to you. Hope you haven't figured it out. All right, it's up to you because it's coming to you. And the man needs to take that weight, that responsibility on his shoulders, understanding that just like the father protected the daughter, it is his role to protect it. Not because the woman can't protect herself, because it is the privilege of the woman to be under protection. But what happens in our, in our, sadly, in our culture, we want to rebel against that. We want to push back. No, I don't want that. I can do it on my own. And I'm going to say, no, you can't, young man, and no, you can't, young lady. You need one another in the marriage. And then, as the father is escorting his bride, his, his daughter down the aisle, father is filled with joy and anxiousness. The groom is standing there smiling with anticipation of what is going to happen. And I want to take a moment here. Look at verse 23. Now, it is, it is way too challenging right now to walk through this, but there is so much complex Hebrew poetry going on here. You're just going to take my word for it. You can look it up in your Blue Letter Bibles later. But the, in, the incredible complexity of what he says here, these three phrases repeated in three different ways in Adam's joy. What we have here, again, the world tries to tell us that Adam was some type of Neanderthal, just banging two rocks together, had no brain. What we have here is an incredibly complex poem that Adam is proclaiming. The world will try to tell you, Adam stood there and say, me, Tarzan, you, Jane. All right, that's what evolution tries to tell us. But what the Bible tells us is that Adam was not some type of just idiotic man that's going to bop his wife over and drag her to his cave. Adam is a man who is fully aware of what's going on. He understands it. He's able to put together complex thought. He's able to give meaning to things that are happening all around him. Adam was a man that was fully image bearer of God. 
We need to not buy that stupid lie that the world gives us. In a way here, before we get to the summary statement of 24, which is going to be next week's whole sermon, we, I think we need to leave Adam with this. He is given Eve, he breaks out in joy and excitement. And if Adam is like any guy that has just been given his wife, guess what he's going to do? He's going to take her through the garden and start pointing out all sorts of stuff. This is, look at this, this thing here, and he's just going to be enraptured with his wife. And if he's like any other guy, he's going to want to show his wife anything he had done up until that was taking place and all the things that are around him and the excitement that is coming with this. And you want to, in your mind, you want to see that, that, that and, and I, I want to be careful here, but also at the same time too, you know when a young man has just gotten married and it's between now and when they have yet to go off on their honeymoon, the way he's like looking at his bride of like, you know what's going to happen here soon. And that joy that is there, that is going to take place of we're about ready to start our lives together. And what does that mean in the anticipation of it all that is there? We need to leave Adam and Eve at that moment right there. And then we have to ask ourselves, do I still have that same enjoyment with the spouse that God has given me? Because... This is not a oops that God has brought you two together. Yet the world wants to attack every marriage because every marriage, Satan wants to attack you because every marriage screams to the world around us, Christ and the church. Satan hates it and he will do whatever he can to destroy it. But we, as followers of God, must, with every last breath, continue to follow God in our God-given roles. And we will develop this even more in the upcoming weeks. And so, next week, we're going to look at the mystery, how two become one. This is what the text is talking about. Then we're going to spend a whole week talking about, all right, so we work through Genesis. What are we going to do with all of these things? And I'll use a word that many of you will not know the definition of, but that's okay. By the time we're done, we will. And I won't tell you until we get there the word I'm going to say. That being said, let's just bring it to a conclusion here real quick. By the way, there are so many more things we could have said today. And... Um, those will be said some other time, but God, I believe, laid on my heart what to share with you through this. And so here's what I want to remind you. That marriage is created by God. Marriage is created by God for your good and His glory. When you're there, and let's say you've just gotten through the latest argument, when you realize that your spouse will never meet all of those needs that you thought your spouse was going to have, when you realize your spouse is not perfect, because I got the only perfect one, you know, I'll save that for, you know. But when you realize that your spouse is not, when you realize all of these other things that are going on around us, when you realize that your spouse is a sinner saved by grace, and you all of a sudden are clashing at each other, right? And you want to mutter under your breath, really, is it not good that man should be alone? You know, because I could really use some alone time right now. And all of these things that are going on, do we really realize the battle that is right in front of you, right there for the glory of God? 
Because each one of us has been called. Now, we want to wrap it back around. You singles, you're not off the hook. Each one of us have been called to display what a godly woman looks like to the world, if you're a woman. You've been called to explain what a godly man looks like, if you're a man. And we've been called, if you're a wife that is married, what a godly wife looks like to the world, and what a godly husband looks like to the world. Each one of us, each day, has been called to display that to the world around us. And instead of sitting over here going, why is the world so messed up, all of these other things, it must start with each one of us. It must start with each one of us with those steps of obedience that God has called us to. Because even in the toughest days of all the time that marriage can be, even in those moments where you're going, is it even worth it? We must remind ourselves the statement that I have said now every single time, and I'm going to close with this statement again, that everything God does is perfectly wise and is, compl- is perfect and completely wise and is the fittest means to accomplish everything he has decreed. He has decreed that marriage would be a picture of Christ in the church. So display that picture through the Spirit's help each day. Let's pray. Dear Holy Father, thank you. Thank you that you are the one that saves. Thank you that you are the one who redeems. Thank you that you are the one that has given us this beautiful picture of how you and the church interact. Help us next week as we explore that even more. Thank you for the way that we got to see marriage in the garden. In your name we pray. Amen. You could stand with us as we sing.